the temptation to stand up here and just begin reading the speech <laughs> is overwhelming, which would give our speaker 40 minutes to compose an introduction. Welcome to Rare Book School, week two. Our speaker this evening is Daniel Traster, who will be speaking on the value, if any, of special collections, followed by me tomorrow, who will be speaking in, again in this room on the value, if any, of Rare Book School. It's a great pleasure to welcome Daniel Traster back to this platform, which he has graced many times to our profit. It's actually the future of special collections, and should there be one, but it's close. Um, and I should simply say that uh, the 18-point printout of my talk is sitting with my suit on a chair in Philadelphia, which is where it was carefully located so that I would remember to take it when I walked out the door. But alas! Sometimes things don't happen the way you hope they will. And so I'm wearing a t-shirt which some of you may remember from last year when I also spoke, although I think in Clements, not here, on a different subject. Um, I should also say that there are many occasions that can prompt a speaker to wonder what in God's name he thinks he's doing at a podium but nothing prompts me to ask that question quite so remorsefully as following Greer Allen to the same podium. A great speaker like a thing of beauty may be a joy forever and for everyone too, except for the poor turkey who is the next speaker. Thank you, Greer, wherever you are. And thank you, Terry, for another chance to expatiate nauseatingly and at length once again in this venue. Looking at the little exhibition of Book Arts Press Lectures in Alderman before writing this introduction, I found several entries for me, all I noted with mingled feelings of pride and self-congratulation have now been published but for the talk I gave here last summer fetchingly entitled Dead Books. That talk might have been something of a downer, but it is also part of a larger project and must therefore await completion of its context. By contrast, the talk I give tonight was first written in 1993 before some other talks written later, but now in print. It's been in the can, so to speak, while I continue to mull it over. Usually, and in this respect, like most writers I know, I don't know what I think about a subject until I write about it. This is that rare occasion when I have written my thoughts down in something like order, and yet I remain uncertain about the degree to which I agree with what I've said. Such uncertainty might have prompted me to leave this talk at rest for a bit longer. Its web version, however, seems to have sparked a small debate at this spring's ARL meetings. Alice Schreier, an old friend, a sometime rare book school instructor, and rare book librarian at Chicago's Regenstein Library disagreed with what my 1993 version said. Suzanne Thorne, Indiana University's library director, seems to have agreed with me, or at least so I hear. A little bit from Alice, a little bit from Suzanne, and more little bits from others who were actually there as I was not as well. I find it somewhat surprising that an unpublished essay should attract such attention. Not only surprising, this attention is also disturbing evidence to me that my dubious or skeptical ruminations on the subject of the field in which I work and about which I have taught courses at Rare Book School since Mastodon's roamed Virginia have, at the very least, some ability to spark continued thought about what we think we do in this field. With that hope in mind, then, here it is, out for an airing once again. I went as a visitor 
to someone else's special collection. Standing in the alien but familiar precincts of another institutional context, hallowed to some other scholars and some other librarians' obsessions, I listened to an exceptionally well-presented set speech delivered by a person who loves the materials with which she works and is astonishingly articulate about them and their function. She told her audience about how labor-intensive her readers are, how she must schedule their visits with great care, how much supervision and assistance they require, how physically difficult her materials are to use, how her security needs have grown. In short, she told us, in specific, all the things I was taught generally, both in library school and in my first job as a rare book librarian. I listened to her with admiration and unexpected, intense, and growing dismay. What she conveyed so well was not merely knowledge and enthusiasm, although she conveyed both of these abundantly, but also attitudes, what in a different context I called a moment ago in ideology. These two she conveyed abundantly because they are the standard attitudes of my profession. One rarely thinks about them as ideology. When one does, they seem instead merely self-evident. I absorbed such attitudes long ago, or so I had thought. I have experienced some of the best as well as some of the worst which a career such as this one can offer. I've done so over what is beginning to be a noticeable chunk of years. And I bear at least a superficial resemblance to someone who has been considered a leading figure in the field, whatever that may mean. Something, therefore, must be seriously wrong with me, for despite this experience and a long past spent working with and in and writing and teaching about special collections, as I listen to this entirely admirable person present her spiel, I hated it. I admired her knowledge of and enthusiasm for her materials. I loathed the way she spoke about bringing those materials together with her readers. Why? I begin with a truism, even if not a particularly pleasurable one. Special collections are not the most admired. Special collections librarians, not the best liked parts and people within most of our libraries. The field has changed noticeably in many ways since I started out in it. But this unpleasant sense of its difference has not been one of them. This sense of difference, like other aspects of the ideology of rare book librarianship, is something we all begin to absorb very early. In my case, such absorption began long before I ever thought of special collections as a field I would enter myself. I spent four years as an undergraduate English major at a picture postcard pretty little New England college without once seeing a rare book or manuscript. It's not that the place I went to was so impoverished or benighted that it had none far from it. It had noteworthy collections of the literature of the Irish Renaissance, of Thomas Hardy, and of a variety of New England writers. It must also have had then, for it does now, a copy or two of an older book of English and American literature or history floating around. Yet, it seems never to have crossed anyone's mind that these might be things a young person could want to see, to touch, perhaps even, God forbid, to read. Anyone in this case was the rare book librarian. He was also a specialist in the American Renaissance and Jewett. And at least, and as I surely unfairly remember him, he might as well have worn a sign about his neck reading Noli Me Tangeri or my books either. His demeanor to students, at any rate, would have chilled beer. <clears throat> As a graduate student at New York University, I was too specialized for that institution's collections, which were concentrated in periods later than my own interests. On the other hand, it still crossed no one's mind that students, graduate students, for goodness sake, ought to see such materials somewhere before going off to teach literature. That is, 
stuff which, once upon a time, had not been printed in a textbook. By the time I was beavering away at my dissertation, I had developed what was to prove a permanent, not to say regrettable, peculiarity. I was interested in seeing, occasionally even reading, just such things. Because I specialized in literature of the English Renaissance, the library resources of a distinguished Ivy League university, some few miles to the north of New York University, would have been perfect for me. But I never dreamed that they might be open to me, and I was right. They weren't. I could, if necessary, use the even richer resources of the New York Public Library, which was open to anyone over the age of 18 who seemed on the right side of clean. And thanks to an indulgent father, I was eventually able to use the British Library. Imagine my surprise when some years later, now a student at that same distinguished Ivy League university where I would earn a library degree and later be an occasional member of the faculty, I found the rich resources of its special collections department in effect still closed to me. I would need to argue on an ad hoc basis for the privilege of using its materials each time I wanted to. Alas, I tend to be a browser and a borrower. Sometimes, most times, I read out of curiosity and only later discover or decide that what I have read is relevant to some point or other I want to write, write about, maybe just because I happened to read it. The keepers did not approve of this approach. And without a good excuse, one got no reader's ticket. I was then, and remain, a bit too stuffy to have lied my way in. Apart from one use of the department in 1975 for a mandated exercise for students, I have read there only once in 1993. It was a legitimate use of the collection, even by their loopy standards, I am happy to report. And oh yes, I once took a class I was teaching at this distinguished institution for a formal visit not an experience I chose ever again to repeat. Oh well, such are the vagaries of the peculiar place to which that guy went to school, you may be saying, so let me leave my own biography for a moment and refer to my wife's. She went to the same college as I, no differences there. For graduate school, however, she attended an extremely Ivy University. While she was there, she discovered whole libraries she could not use without special permission. A fully registered graduate student, documents quite in order, she would one day be ejected into the universe by this very institution with what seemed perfectly respectable MPhil and PhD degrees. And just as they promised she would, when she grew up, she became a published scholar, one who has been translated into Japanese, a full professor, and a department chairperson. Nonetheless, while she was a student at Extremely Ivy U, she was deemed to suffer from an irremediable genetic deficiency, viz. no Y chromosome, which in those days made a big difference at that distinguished place. This deficiency prevented her, along with an entire class of similarly challenged students, from using certain of the institution's special collections resources. One might have thought, and well, one would have been wrong. These are, in fact, stories which could be multiplied with great ease. All of us know people who have been turned away from, had difficulties at, or experienced condescension, downright rudeness, or suspicion of their integrity, cleanliness, or general demeanor while trying to use or simply not been encouraged to think about using rare book and manuscript repositories. No wonder my colleagues, and I suppose I, have such marvelous reputations in the world. We exist, viewed from one not entirely unreasonable perspective, not to bring readers and books together, but rather to keep them as far apart as possible, always, of course, with the best interests of the books in mind. The best interests of the books. Here is the inescapable tension at the heart of special collections librarianship. So we have always been taught. So I have taught in my turn. So my admirable colleague told her audience when we visited her special collection. 
On the one hand, readers need access. On the other, our materials need protection. Variably commensurable values contend in uneasy relation with each other, openness and security, use and preservation, people and objects. We can ignore neither side of these pairs, yet both have the constant potential to conflict. In special collections, after all, the materials for which we care may be often are uncommon, sometimes unique, frequently old, fragile, or just plain expensive and irreplaceable. Our responsibility is not just to the reader who walks in off the street today, but also to that reader's children and great-great-great-grandchildren, as well as to the fiduciary interests of the institutions which employ us to keep and preserve those materials for future use unto the nth generation. And there is the root of the difference between general and special collections, the one distinguishing fact that makes special collections special. The rest of our libraries circulate their stuff promiscuously to just any old one. People being people, take it home, drop spaghetti sauce on it, leave it on a windowsill during the rain, sneeze on it when they have cold, write in the margins, and good grief, may do all these things and be nobody important at all. They might be undergraduates. They might be female. They might turn out to lack any academic credentials whatsoever. Pond life, in short. Our stuff simply cannot be subjected to such risks, too valuable, too rare, too precious. It is the stuff of scholarship. It exists to be the happy hunting ground of scholars. It should be kept for them, their students, and their work. This is not an utterly insane point of view. Contrary to accepted mythologies, however, it is by no means the only point of view which is conceivable. I have used and worked in libraries here and abroad. I have read a bit in library history, and I have come increasingly to feel that American special collections are not only a troublesome concept in theory, but also, generally speaking, worse in practice. Our theory too often justifies a broad range of practices which, however well-intentioned they may be, prove in execution, even when they are not simply idiotic, as too frequently they are, mean-spirited, judgmental, exclusionary, hierarchical, and otios. If I am even close to being right, which I say with what I hope is the due regard for the possibility that I have instead declined into the rhetorical overkill which occasions such as this one occasionally elicit, these ought to be very strong reasons encouraging us to re-examine that theory from the ground up. Let me start with the obvious question. What are we protecting so zealously? When all the lip service to scholarship and uniqueness and fragility has been rendered, fragility, by the way, who has ever turned the leaves of the average incunable with that criterion in mind and not realized instantly that they're going to outlast all of us and will do so quite handily down to that mythical nth generation for which we wait with bated breath even if we do and maybe especially if we do nothing to them at all. After all that lip service to noble ideals, the only answer I think which makes any sense at all is we're protecting money. The stuff costs a lot to buy, more to replace, if it even can be replaced, and we'll get fired if we lose it. Money and ourselves. Money isn't a bad answer when you come right down to it. But if it isn't, then what are we doing in the rest of our libraries? Consider the relative prices of 18th century novels and, let us say, many workaday medical reference books or perhaps chemical abstracts. When I recently acquired from my current library an unrecorded 18th century American imprint, it cost my institutional exchequer $25. Perhaps, however, a comparison between rare books and medical and scientific reference books and journals loads the dice. 
Consider instead what circulates every day in our fine arts collections. This field is a minor interest of mine, so I occasionally look at dealers' catalogs in it. Not catalogs published by antiquarian booksellers, just those published by used booksellers. Books which my library owns, books which I own, and for which I can well recall paying what I thought then the outrageous price of $17, now sell routinely in the low to mid three figures, if you can find them at all. So what's the difference here? There must be one. There must be some principal development of thought and logic which underlies the way we library scientists ordinarily differentiate between pricey old books and pricey recent ones. But I fear I've missed it. I think, to be fair, that it must reside in our more or less visceral suspicion that a recent book will turn up if need be, whereas the older one will not. Hence, our decline into overprotectiveness. Yet my own experience fails to support such comparative optimism about the recent on the one hand and pessimism about the not so recent on the other. Several years ago, I had to replace one issue of Thomas Hobbes' bibliographically complex Leviathan and a copy of David Dalrymple's Memorials and Letters Relating to the History of Britain in the Reign of James I. Hobbes required about two years. The cost for the replacement was under $1,500. Dalrymple took less than 16 months, and the cost for the replacement copy was something under $150. I actually think it was about 48 pounds. The older books we call irreplaceable and expensive may well prove to be just that. However, my strong impression is that they are so far less frequently then we like to scare ourselves into believing, so as, dare I speculate, to justify a set of restrictive practices and self-aggrandizing differentiations which make special collections special. Let me point the obvious contrast quickly. Since 1970, I searched for a novel written by an American woman entitled The Narrow Liar. It is, I think, a good book, and I wanted to add it to libraries where I work, not for special, but for general collections. It's a book that deserves to circulate and be read. I even wanted a copy for myself. Until 1998, I had never seen one, other than the copy which, in order to read the book, I borrowed through interlibrary loan many years ago. The copy, which eventually reached me in Michigan, came from the Library of Congress. This book was not published in Walpole, Mass. in 1797, nor in Charleston, South Carolina in 1818. It was published in New York City in 1956 by Harper. Its author is Janice Warnke, a Columbia graduate, and a writer on topics that involve music. Some of you who are fans of the Metropolitan Opera may remember that she and her husband, Frank, a European 17th century poetry specialist, very frequently contributed to Metropolitan Opera news. I sought this book published in the normal way since World War II by a major American trade publisher, not for 16 months, not for two years, but for well over 25 years. When I found it, Deo Gratius, I found two copies, one for my library, one for me. And they were, up to that point, the only other two copies of this book I'd ever seen. I found it via the web, and just last week noticed that there seems to be a third copy that's been posted in the intervening year and year and a half. What distinguishes the majority of the books in special collections from books in general circulation is not quite so much their expense or irreplaceability as we like to think, in short. If these criteria really are determinant, then the open circulation policies which define most American libraries are in grave error, and we should all, not just special collections departments, but the whole shooting match, emulate the models of the New York public or British libraries, or the Bodleian Library at Oxford, turning ourselves into repositories where books may be read on site, 
but never leave the premises. That's not going to happen, of course. At my own university, which I take to be typical in this respect, any effort to turn the main library into a non-circulating collection would require, first and foremost, vast alterations to the physical fabric of the building itself. No responsible institutional administrator would permit any such thing. None could even begin to afford it. Our library was built on the assumption of open stack access to and ease of circulation from the collections. We cannot close off access to our stacks to keep books from circulating illicitly. They already do, of course. And also build and staff reading rooms with sufficient seating to permit easy on-site use of our collections unless we build an entirely new and different library building from the ground up. That's just the physical problem. Much more incendiary would be the response of our students and faculty, all of whom take it as their God-given right to circulate the majority of our collections, take the books home, sneeze on them if they happen to be reading them when they have a cold, take spaghetti sauce, plop it on them, and do all the other sorts of horrible things people do to books all the time. And by the by, which I have done to books, and which all of us in this room have done to books, and which all books have endured since there were books, I've even written on those. And I cannot be the only person, I'll simply say parenthetically in my field, who thinks that the emphasis on pristine condition in the collecting field of modern firsts is misplaced. I think it's indicative merely of the fact that the book has never been read. One of the things that continues to excite me about older books is precisely the marks, the comments, the marginalia, which shows that they have had early readers and which may even occasionally indicate those readers' responses. The books in special collections are normally in better shape than those that circulate. They're better made, they get used less frequently, and they get slightly better care. They can be located in the trade pretty easily since they're known usually to have a market. No one in the field of modern firsts has ever heard of the name of Janice Warnke, I, and a now-dead friend who reviewed her second easy-to-find book for the New York Times are the only people I know who've ever read a line she wrote. She's not worth sticking in a catalog. I thought I'd find a copy if I were lucky at an AAUW or Bryn Mawr book sale and found two instead over the internet, but she's not going to be rediscovered in my lifetime or hers. So far as I know, she's still alive. On the other hand, even the least amusing 18th century novelist or the most derivative 16th century writer of Neo-Latin poetry is worth cataloging if for no other reason than his or her sheer age. If I look long and hard enough and reach the telephone quickly enough, I can replace almost any such work for which replacement may prove necessary. I think our priorities may be misplaced. But because of how they're misplaced, I have the right, in fact, I'm thought to have the responsibility to quiz readers who show up in my reading room. Before allowing them to use our materials, I ought to get their name, rank, and serial number, look at their hands for dirt, keep them under constant surveillance while they use the materials for which I care, and ask them whether they know enough to use the book for which they knew enough to ask. Am I making this up? Before being permitted to use a 16th century manuscript at another institution than my own, a scholar I know well was made to demonstrate her ability to read it by reading from it aloud to the keeper at that institution. It was written in a particularly difficult English secretary hand. Who, if I may be so bold, the hell was he? I know who the reader is, and I also know what her qualifications to use the manuscript in questions are as well. She is my wife. The library is at Cambridge, England, not Massachusetts. And in case it matters, she had gone to Cambridge to see this one manuscript only after working her way through some 47 of the same writer's manuscripts at Oxford's Bodleian Library. She knew much more about the writer of the manuscript and his handwriting than the person quizzing her. But as soon as I tell you this tale, 
I'm also saying something about where I think our models, attitudinal, ideological, and behavioral, all too frequently come from. Translate this situation, if you can, into American terms, without, for the moment, thinking special collections. It's not easy, it's very nearly impossible to do. For example, what exactly does the word qualifications mean? Who is qualified? By what standards? And by whose? To read the Republic, or Leviathan, or Marx, Hitler, Kay Gibbons, or Ernest Gaines. We never ask such questions at a circulation desk. Maybe we should, but we don't. Since we don't in that place, what in the world gives the Cambridge keeper, or me, the right to ask these questions of readers who wander into special collections? Should I quiz the student who asks to see Shakespeare's first folio? I am supposed to, but on what basis? And even if there were an obvious reason to ask the question, what then would be a good answer to it? If there is a particular genius to American librarianship, and I think there is, it is in our history of abandonment of older European and English models, which determined who did and did not get access to libraries by starting with the more or less automatic assumption that few, rather than many, merited such access and of our growing accommodation to ideals of unquestioned access, openness, and the right of any reader to read any damn thing he or she pleases, no matter how vile and disgusting, and no matter who he or she is. We've learned these lessons with difficulty. In many respects, we're still learning them. We've increased our hours of opening, just the starters, since Dartmouth College, to give only one example, opened its library to the two upper classes on Monday and to others on Tuesday of each week from one o'clock to two. <laughs> and we've broadened the stock of materials we think appropriate for our libraries to contain and to circulate. Times have changed since at Harvard, Cotton Mather asked whether students were reading plays, novels, and empty and vicious pieces of poetry. Nowadays, no one asks. And the empty and vicious come off our shelves in a wider variety of flavors than Mather would have dared imagine. Still buying lesbian pornography, a colleague regularly asks me, and I always tell him the truth. Yes. <laughs> True. We don't do as well as we might in including in our collections the works of the political age, religiously, racially, geographically, sexually, or gendered undesirables who form so surprisingly large a component of American society. Nonetheless, we try to do well in this respect, except in special collections where we've had standards. There, our models are the sorts of libraries which kept Virginia Woolf from using them because she was a woman, or those that imposed tests of one sort or another before allowing applicants to become readers. No one in my field lacks stories of this sort, told often enough as if they were funny. They are the stories from which we learn the ideology of our trade, which socialize us into this field. One example of the genre and it's a story I think I owe to Terry Bellinger from when I was in his class in the 1970s. Maybe apocryphal, but that doesn't really matter from the point of view of the story's function. It's a story about the famous art historian Millard Meese, long before he had become the famous art historian Millard Meese. In fact, just after he had completed his doctorate and was returning to the United States, from graduate school in Germany. En route, he stopped at the Bibliothèque Nationale to see a particular illuminated manuscript. It would be in part for his studies of illuminated manuscripts that Mies ultimately became the famous art historian Millard Mies. But when he called for it, he was refused this manuscript. It was explained to him it's too precious to be used, therefore no one sees it. But the silly and youthful American asked, are you keeping it for? Posterity was the reply. 
Tell the keeper that posterity has arrived. The undeterred beast is said to have responded. And Murat believed it too, whether because he or she thought Americans were posterity, or simply because he or she had grown tired of arguing, the French keeper agreed. Both the manuscript and Mies were placed together in the reading room. There, while examining it, Mies felt a tap on his shoulder. Excuse me, came a timorous query from a graybeard behind him. But are you by any chance looking at BN manuscript number so and so? Why, yes, said he. Would you be very discommoded, the man went on. Were I to look at it with you, over your shoulder? Not at all, said Nice. They examined it together. When they had done, the older man covered the fresh, newly BPHD Mies with thanks, telling him what an honor it was to have been able at long last to see this manuscript for which he had been asking for many years, and also to have seen it in such distinguished company. But what, said Mies, still after all this a naive, what can possibly have prevented you from doing so? Alas! responded the stranger. They never show this manuscript to just anyone. You, he continued, must be very distinguished. I am embarrassed to say that I don't recognize you. Who, me? replied Mies. I am Willard Mies. And who are you? I, alas, came the reply, I'm a mere nobody, just the professor of art history here at the Sorbonne. <laughs> A story such as this has a double edge. It warns the budding curators to whom it is told that they need to be very careful about whom they keep out. But simultaneously, it asserts their right to question those who want in. Posterity, we cry, and thus, although in the instance the story retails, we may have made a teensy-weensy little mistake, we remind ourselves that we work at the sorts of places whose curators and keepers and staffs are bastions of the old standards, preservers, literal preservers of culture. Is this what rare book librarianship is supposed to be about? I'm far from sure that it is. In fact, I'm dangerously close to certain that it isn't. And I'm even more perilously close to fearing that I have not exactly caricatured what I would criticize either. I think we need to be more like, not more unlike, other American libraries if we are to justify our survival. No more than our colleagues elsewhere have we got the patent, the final word, on what is culture, who can or should have access to it, and what its preservation requires. The stuff is organic. Like us, it's going to die sooner or later. Or unlike us, require some sort of reformatting. I long for the day, but it isn't here yet. If its text must be preserved for subsequent generations, while it's alive, why should it not get used, felt, touched, admired, smelled by real live people with real live interests and varied competencies of which we might not have proved, but which we also have no right or ability to judge? Am I saying raise the floodgates and let the barbarians or whatever they are in? I know that no such thing is going to happen. Although, what would happen, Sid Hutner has asked, if we dropped the locks, would anyone care? I may think that we should let the barbarians in, but I can easily guess the number of people, particularly institutional administrators, who would agree with me, and there seems little reason to propose policies that have no chance at a live birth. In fact, however, I'm arguing for something a little more difficult. We don't ask enough questions of ourselves about our attitudes or our purposes in our specific situations. Instead of allowing unquestioned assumptions, ideology, which unconsciously asserts its own general applicability to determine our behavior, we should ask such questions. And does a corollary assume that fewer blanket responses will adequately cover the questions we ask? 
We need to try instead to imagine answers that help us to distinguish between the functions and needs of one place and another, one format and another. What may be appropriate behavior at Cambridge or Paris may not be appropriate behavior at a university in Philadelphia, Charlottesville, or Lawrence, Kansas. What may be appropriate behavior with printed books may not be equally appropriate with older bound codex manuscripts, modern manuscripts, or archives. Perhaps distinctions need to be made even among materials which we normally classify in similar ways. What may be appropriate behavior at a repository without a resident student and faculty population and with de facto national repository functions, the Library of Congress, the New York Public Library, the American Antiquarian Society, may not be appropriate behavior for the New England Historic Genealogical Society or the Mormon Genealogical Repository in Utah. Put a bit more positively, what has worked elsewhere in American librarianship, even for other parts of the libraries at Penn, Kansas, Charlottesville, Cleveland, might work in some, even if not all, American special collections as well. What might such changes mean in practice? The aggressive pursuit and encouragement of instructors and of their classes to visit special collections, not a passive way for their requests for such visits, might be an easy place to start changing the role of special collections within an academic community. Library staff can initiate conversations across as much of a university's spectrum as can be reached and urge instructors to bring their classes, graduate and undergraduate, to see materials in their original form and to learn why anyone might want to use them in that original form wherever such a visit might be relevant or just plain, forgive me, Cotton Mather, fun. Relatedly, library staff can initiate some ongoing non-credit seminars that draw on the resources peculiar to special collections departments and which will bring library staff into close contact with instructional staff and students. Book history and bibliographical and textual issues, an obvious area for such seminars, interest more than English and American literature students. The practitioners of any text-based discipline, classics, philosophy, must be concerned with the material means by which the basic texts of that discipline were transmitted in handwritten and printed form across time. This is a concern, in fact, that current trends in academic theory have increased dramatically. The collaboration of students, faculty, and special collection staff on such seminars will itself prove an important means of integrating library staff into the academic life of an institution. Such seminars and their organization will be time-consuming, but they will also give an institution's materials an airing before potentially interested readers who might not have known that this sort of stuff was present for them to work with in their own institutions, or even that these kinds of questions might be asked. Texts, after all, do not fall from the printer, as did the Ten Commandments upon Moses, divinely inscribed upon stone. We know this. It can be something of a surprise to learn how many students and their teachers do not know it. How cumbersome do registration procedures need to be? In some institutions, students who are fully registered have to re-register to use their own library's special collections department, even if they can present an up-to-date current institutional ID card with photograph. In an era when registration records are electronically accessible, what useful function does a reading room registration process serve other than to make more off-putting than it needs to be an experience which is already quite awesome enough for most users. Are there good reasons not to allow members of the faculty to browse collections, unsupervised, giving them the key? In the rankings of special collection sins, this one would dump anyone who practiced it immediately into the eighth, if not ninth, circle of hell. Why? University libraries are formed for use, not show. 
Are special collections somehow exempt from this function? Some faculty use libraries the same way I use libraries. As I have already mentioned, I browse. Of course, I can browse special collections. I work here. They don't. But wait a minute. They do work here, too. They just work for a different part of the institution. The part of the institution, if I remember correctly, that we tell ourselves that we and our library and its collections exist to support. One needn't tell them that they can take the books home, just that they can browse among them and see what they might otherwise not see, being less expert users, even of our most user-friendly online catalogs than we are. I, who know how to use both our card and our online catalogs better than they do, still more frequently browse our stacks, <coughs> excuse me, myself, and I know why the ability to do so is significant. What you find when you browse in stacks is the book you didn't already know about, and hence could not have looked up. If there is some doubt about whether the sin of allowing faculty to browse rates the eighth or ninth circle of hell, there would be no doubt, for I can suggest the same thing with students. Ninth circle it is, sooner the better. I am sure this is a bad thing. And I am waiting for someone who can tell me in words of one syllable why. I learned to love books as a browser in library stacks. Most stacks in which I browsed could have been, and were, ripped off regularly. They were ripped off by a very small number of people whose misdeeds, it is at least arguable, ought not to condemn their more honest peers to conditions that make their ability to pursue their work awkward. If American libraries ever return to restrictive procedures with respect to materials in general circulation, then any relaxation of procedures instituted for special collections would also require reconsideration. But until then, in some libraries, in some situations, when with a proper attention to what some institutions conceive their functions to be, even if for no other institutions, student browsing privileges might be worth at least a thought. I know what the cost of theft in special collections can be. I feel those costs daily and pay for some of them, too. Even so, I am utterly unwilling to grant final victory to thieves by curtailing our users' ability to make the fullest possible legitimate use of our collections out of fear that some tiny percentage of them will also prove to be thieves. These suggestions are not answers for everyone. They are not an entire set of answers, not a finished set of answers for anyone either. I do think they suggest a few of many areas in which we must continue to think about what it is we want the special collections we have given birth to to be when they grow up. For grow up they are doing, have perhaps already done, though I hope not, and yet by and large, they remain shackled to the conceptions we had of them when they were new, youthful, largely untried, and unknown. Research, reading, knowledge, preservation of the national or cultural record, general self-improvement, or just plain pleasure. Whatever we conceive our varied institutional missions to be, the rigid separation into two entirely different modes of operating general and special collections simply does no one any good. I find myself heading, let's say, to Charleston, South Carolina to give a talk, as it happens the genesis of this paper. I've been to South Carolina only once before in my life, my wife and I, together with two friends, visited the art collection at Bob Jones University in Greenville in 1973. This time, I think, 
I want to find out something about South Carolina. So I pottle around in my library. I read James Merrill's 1989 book about the Catawbas, think, hmm, that's interesting. Wander over to William Gilmore Sims' 1835 novel, The Yemisee, a novel which deals with related issues. Read it. Look up some later editions of Sims. Discover FOC Darley's illustrations to the 1853 edition and think, gee, they're very curious. I wonder why he chose those scenes to illustrate. And pretty soon, I've become curious about a book with a question that will take me to a slew of materials in general, special, and fine arts collection. I don't care where they're located when I'm behaving as a reader. All I care about is being able to use these materials as expeditiously as possible. My experience in American libraries has taught me that this is a reasonable expectation. I don't have to show up at the door some days in advance of the work I expect to do, having budgeted enough time to permit to be searched to find out whether I am an IRA terrorist bent on demolishing the new main reading room, get photographed for a special library user's ID, and then hand in call slips in order to wait two days so as to be told that my books were destroyed by enemy action. I think this is a pretty good thing about American libraries. It ought to be a pretty good thing in them as much as possible across the board, even in special collections. If not for readers, then for whom are we saving this stuff? America's special collections have a future, at least insofar as our colleges, universities, public libraries, and reading and writing have a future. The world in which these institutions and activities exist and persist, however, is changing radically, not in the direction of increased restrictions, but towards expanded access and openness. Every indication of the impact of computers suggests that this is one of their most important outcomes, certain in libraries. Special collections will survive. Too much has been invested in them for them not to survive. But unless we who staff them demonstrate an imaginative willingness to come to grips with this fundamental change, I, for one, am far from certain that they should. Thank you. at the speaker at the reception <laughs> that follows immediately in the first floor staff lounge. 